Good morning, everyone. The words that I would like to call your attention to this morning are in John in chapter 4. John chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 7 through 15. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 15. Hear the word of God. Therefore, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me? which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that, that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. From where will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children? And his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be a well of water springing up in him into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, neither come here to draw. Amen. As we saw last week, Jesus had a divine appointment as he was traveling away from the city, he takes a, a path, a, a longer route to meet this woman. To meet this woman in a historic city, at a historic well. And now Jesus engages her in conversation. Jesus is going to talk to this woman about some of the greatest truths that men and women need to know. And yet this entire path for Christ, this 20, 40 mile walk, is just a small picture, really. It's just a microcosm of the work of Christ for sinners. Listen to what John writes in verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, he sat there, wearied. 
by the well, and it was the sixth hour. Jesus wearied himself. You have to consider this. Jesus wearied himself because of his burning care and compassion for sinners. Again, as we discussed last week, depending on the route that he took, this was a 20 to 40 mile walk. And now it's noon, and depending on the time of the year, it's either hot or very hot. And Jesus is exhausted, but he has walked at a particular pace and arrived at this particular well at this particular point in time because he had to, because this woman, this sinner was there. He became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, not for his own sake. Christ had no sin in himself. There was no need for him to suffer the things that he suffered as a man. Yet he suffered these things for our sake. The West Larger Catechism asks a very interesting question. It asks, well, I think it's... Uh, it's a rich theological question, and it's one that most of us have considered at some point or another. And if you're not a Christian, this is a question that you have to consider yourself. It asks the question, why was it required that the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, should be a man? Because if anything else in verse 6 here, what you see is, as we discussed last week, is you see the humanity of Christ. And it answers, gives multiple reasons but I just want to read one, one clause. It says this. It was required that the mediator should be a man that he suffer. This was one of the reasons Christ had to suffer. And as he engages himself to, to, to bring this woman to know God, Christ suffers. He's wearied. Literally, the word is that he was absolute, uh, you know, uh, the, the technical way to say it is he was absolutely spent, technically speaking. He was exhausted. He was exhausted to the point of thirst. And there's one other place in the Gospels where Jesus asks for a drink. And that's at the cross. This, this verse, turn there. Look at John 19, verse, verse 28. In John 19, verse 28, we hear these words from Christ. After this, after enduring all of the sufferings and being wearied after the torture and the beating and the crucifixion. Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. In this one verse in John 6, you have just a small picture of the entire work of Christ coming into the world to accomplish his Father's will that sinners might be saved. 
that they would come to know Christ, his sufferings. And here, of course, you may think to yourself, well, it's just uh, the sufferings of, 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 a, of a long trip. Yet consider the man who is taking this long trip and then consider the person who he's speaking to. He's not coming to, to speak to, to Herod or to some government official. He's not even taking this trip to speak to someone who's a religious leader like Nicodemus, but a woman of Samaria. We don't even know her name. We don't know who this woman is. And then if you consider her reputation, she had five husbands, and the man that she lives with now is not even her husband that Christ would weary himself to preach the gospel to her shows his burning love and compassion for sinners. And it's just a small picture, really, of the entire life of Christ and what he accomplished for us. God providentially ordered this event. Verse 4 tells us he must needs go through Samaria. I love how the King James puts it there. There was a divine necessity. And the divine necessity was that this man would come, that this woman would come to know the Savior. Now the Holy Spirit enabled John, the gospel writer, to record this event. But to what end, though? Why, why is this in the Bible? It's just, um, because you listen to most modern sermons on this passage, and it's a passage for us to learn how to evangelize. And it sort of puts us in the place of Jesus. And this is how you should talk to unbelievers. Now, uh, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So I've got no issue with with us um, being holy as Christ was holy. But really, it, it shifts the perspective of the entire historical event, of, of this particular story that we have here. All historical facts, all true, but it shifts it. It shifts our attention from Christ himself. Because what he's doing is he is presenting himself to this woman and he is clarifying a point that has, had already been made in his conversation with Nicodemus. That the father did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. But to save the world, to save sinners. This is why Christ came. And this narrative puts that particular truth on display. It shows us how Christ came into the world with a specific purpose, to save sinners, to save men and women that to others are of no consequence. Men and women that no one really cares for, but God does. And in his providence, he goes through Samaria to meet this woman. What a magnificent historical account and what beautiful truths we have laid before us. Now, uh, the, the, the way the passage is laid out, look at uh, verse 7. Really, it's, um, of course, this goes all the way uh, uh, 
through verse uh, 42. But initially when he comes and he's speaking to the woman directly, um, verses 17 through 15, you have Jesus making, he makes a statement first. The woman asks a question. He responds to her. She asks another. He responds again. And then she makes a statement. Give me this water to drink. So all we're going to do is just look at the conversation. So, so first, we're going to see verses 7 through 9. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 9, and um, let's, let's, let's listen in to this conversation Jesus has with this woman. The Holy, uh, so the, the time came now. For the good shepherd to begin to gather his sheep from the other fold. The wall of separation is being cast down. And nothing will keep the good shepherd from going after even one lost sheep. These truths are intended more than anything else to strengthen our faith to strengthen our faith in Christ, to display His care and compassion, the care and compassion of a Savior. And we can know His care and compassion by seeing it displayed to this woman. Now, we're told that Jesus is there, and it's the sixth hour. Now, most commentators agree this is noon. And... It's burning hot outside. This isn't the normal time that women would come and collect water. And generally, the women would all come together for safety, for conversation, for interaction with each other. It was sort of a, a part of their routine where they would come later in the day when the sun had already started coming down and they would collect their water. They'd, they'd uh, talk and go back home. Yet this woman is there at a time when nobody else is at the well. This, of course, has to do with her reputation. Most commentators uh, on this passage highlight this particular point, that she's there by herself because of her reputation. Everyone knew. So Samaria is uh, a large region, but this particular area is, is not so overwhelmingly big, and everyone who's going to this well would have known who this woman was. They would have known her sordid past. And to hide herself from their whispers and from their gaze, she goes at the worst possible time. But for her, it's the best time. Because nobody else is there. And Christ, in His sovereignty and God and his providential dealing with men knew where this woman was going to be. And as she comes, wearied with physical thirst, Christ is there now to satisfy her spiritual thirst. We were once this woman, living according to the course of the world, living in disobedience, living in sin and idolatry, 
but we were destined to be justified by Christ. And at some point, Christ came. Christ came to us through the preaching of the gospel. So this woman comes and draws water. And Jesus says, give me a drink, verse 7. And for his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. Then the woman said to him, listen, listen, she, she, she's going to raise some difficulties that are involved in this dialogue between her and what initially just appears to be some regular Jewish guy. And you'll, you see in the narrative sort of her respect for him rise slowly. After his first response, she says, Sir, or some translations, Lord. And then after this dialogue, and they shift, after he asks for her husband, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. So her interaction with Christ causes her gradually to grow in her respect for Christ. So much so that at the end of the narrative, she eventually becomes uh, an evangelist. And she goes and speaks to others about Christ. But she raises some difficulties here. The first is an ethnic and cultural one. And of course, this is mixed in a little bit with some traditions. Look, look, at, look at what she says. She says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That, that last uh, uh, phrase there, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, it may be that John interjected that to help us understand the context. Maybe the woman said it herself. Uh, it doesn't really disturb or disrupt the meaning of the passage. But what is communicated there is an issue of religious tradition bound up with the Jews. So you have this religious issue, but now look at the ethnic and cultural one. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? You're Jewish and I'm, Samari I'm a Samaritan. And there are these religious traditions that Jews have with regards to the Samaritan people. At this point in history, Samaria was part of, uh, of Rome. It, well, it was a, the Roman province of, of Syria, really. And the Samaritans were half-breeds. Half-bred Jews. And they're still alive today, the Samaritans. I think the population is like less than a thousand people. After recounting the division that occurred between Judah and Israel and the ensuing idolatry and rebellion of the Old Testament nation, the author to the book of Kings, which is probably Ezra, um, he's probably the, the final editor of, of that part of the book. He gives us a records of the events that lead up to the birth of the Samaritans. And not only of the Samaritans, but of their religious practices, which were abominable to the Jewish people. If you turn to uh, 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 23, 
as I said, so now the, what the author does is he sort of gives us a, a small picture um, in the verses before this. And he briefly talks about the division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and uh, the northern kingdom's uh, descent into idolatry. And then he says this in 2 Kings 17.23. In 2 Kings 17.23. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. And of course he had promised this in the book of Deuteronomy. That if the people were disobedient, if they chose to go after their own way, he would send them into captivity. And Jeremiah preached these things to the people, of course, and all of the other prophets. As he had said by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. These are the northern tribes. Remember, there's two deportations. First Assyria, then Babylon comes. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria, instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria, and dwelt in the cities thereof. Remember last week, the northern kingdom had made Samaria, in essence, their capital. And now when the Assyrian army takes over, they take all of the rich, all of the wealthy, all of the educated, all of the good craftsmen, farmers, they take all of them and they deport them. And then what they do is they bring in their slaves from other parts and other, uh, from other uh, countries along that region. And basically they do this, of course, to decentralize the authority. Now there's a huge confusion. You have a mixture of races and religions, and their own, the only thing that unites them really is this governing force. At this point, it's Assyria. So this is how the Samaritans became a people, in essence. They were transported into the land, and they married and mingled with the poorer Jewish men and women that were in the land that were left there. We also have a record in this chapter of their corrupted form of worship. Look at verse 25. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. And you see these people came in and they, they didn't know who God was. They had no fear of him. And therefore the Lord set lions among them and slew some of them. Wherefore they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, "The nations which you, uh, which you has, which you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria, they do not know the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them because they do not know the manner of the God of the land." So God sends His people into captivity because of their disobedience. And as this new wave of, of pagans come into the land and they start to worship their idols, God judges them for their idolatry. So the king of Assyria commands, verse 27, to bring one of the priests from Assyria, 
uh, one of the Jewish priests to bring them back into the land, one of the Jewish priests, so that the people might learn how to worship God, how to fear God rightly. Look at verse 28. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. How be it, every nation made gods of their own and put them in the houses of the high places, which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their own cities where they dwelt. So the priest comes and he gives them some instruction on how they ought to fear the Lord, but their worship is to their idols. And here a distinction is made between fear of God and the worship of God. They were still devoted to their idolatry, although they were afraid of this God because they had seen his judgments. How true is that of many today? And many people, go, they go to church because there is some semblance of fear of God. So I'm going to go and I'm going to, you know, check that box off to try to make some sort of amends or some kind of appeasement to this God. But the way that I live my life is not integrally tied to that fear. I live how I want to. Look down at verse 34, same chapter. Unto this day, they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their, uh, neither do they after their statutes or after their ordinances or after the law and commandments which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him you shall fear, and him shall you serve, and to him shall you do sacrifice. So, the people, and, and here's where you have the author, in essence, Ezra, giving some sort of an interpretation. And he says, a genuine fear of God, they never really had. They were afraid of his judgments, but they did not know him. This is not a fear. This is not the fear of the Lord that the book of Proverbs commends that draws one into worship. This was a terror of his just judgments. Now, so, so here, so you have the birth of these Samaritan people. We know where they come from. It's recorded in the Bible. And we know their style of worship and why it was reprehensible to the Jews because it was mingled with paganism. Now, when the exiles returned, Ezra, Nehemiah, when the exiles returned, they find a mixed race, the poor Jews that were left and the Gentiles that were brought in. Their worship was pagan. And these ethnic and religious difficulties reach a crisis point when the Jews return from Babylon. In Ezra chapter 4, 
In Ezra, in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, verses 1 through 6, we have an encounter that makes this excessively clear. So as they return to the land, of course, one of their, 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 their primary objective is to restore the temple. Why? Because they want to restore biblical worship. And Ezra is a trained scribe. And he is ready now with Zerubbabel and with others to rebuild. So we read these words in Ezra chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Asar Hadon, king of Assur, which brought us up here. This was, the, this, this was the king that brought them to this land. Another name for him. But listen to how they're described in verse 1, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. You see, you see their, 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 their um, pagan worship was known. They were not worshiping God rightly. And they were adversaries. And when they asked, hey, help, let us help you build the temple, the Jewish people knew, no, you don't truly worship God. Therefore, you can't have part in this kind of work. We can't do this together. You know, there's, a, there's an entire sermon there about any kind of ecumenical movement to do, quote unquote, the Lord's work with those who, even though they say they worship God, don't worship Him as He calls them to. So, um, the hostility. You see it there. We, we could continue to read in Ezra, um, but uh, look at uh, verse 17. Same chapter. Verse 17. So they were basically, they disrupt the work. They're constantly harassing the Jewish people, giving them a hard time. They write a letter to the king to try to get the people to stop building the land. And you have this statement in verse 17. Then set the king an answer to their letter that they wrote. Unto Rehum, the chancellor, and to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their companions that dwell in Samaria and unto the rest beyond the river. So these were these adversaries, these who were brought into the land, they were from Samaria. Now around 400, 400 BC, what they did was they built their own temple in Gerizim. Okay, the Jews don't want us to worship with them, so what we'll do is we'll do our own thing. These narratives in the Old Testament are so instructive, right? Isn't that what happens today in a lot of churches? Right? Some, somebody gets an itch for some new theology or practice. They make it a big issue. They split a church and open something right down the road somewhere. Kind of division that rips apart churches, rips apart the people of God. 
it, it, it's part of uh, the history of, of true worship, that kind of division. Now in 200 BC, during the Maccabean period, the Jews destroyed their temple. The Jews go up enraged at, at their false worship and they, they destroy the Samaritan's temple. So, so tensions just continue to rise between these two groups. So, so you see the hostility there. You see the, the difficulty, the, the tension that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. And Jesus, of course, knows all of this and comes to the woman and she says, how is it that you being a Jew? Well, how did she know he was a Jew? Probably by the clothes that he wore. There were particular requirements, tassels, maybe his, uh, his accent, maybe the way that he looked. She knew he was a Jew. It was very clear to her. And he, uh, she knew that he would have known about the hostility and the difficulty between them. So you have this ethical and religious hostility that exists. And she brings it up when he asks for a drink. There's something else about the religious tradition that's important. She says to him, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But here, here's the thing. It doesn't mean that they don't interact. Where did his disciples go? They went into Samaria. For what? To get food. Food that hadn't been handled by Samaritans. And what were they going to do? They were going to eat that food. Some translations have a footnote or something. That translates that verse this way. For Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. And that word means they don't use together. The, the, the word that uh, is translated have no dealings in most translations can be and I think should be translated. They don't use dishes together. They don't share things in common. They don't have common meals. They don't sit down at a table and eat together. They don't have that kind of fellowship and participation. And what this invokes or brings in mind is uh, the, the, uh, when um, Peter is having a conversation with Cornelius and he says, you know, we don't go inside uh, Gentiles' houses. We don't, we don't do that. Or when... Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that this person who's acting ungodly, you're, you're to kick him out, don't have anything to do with that person. There's no participation. There's no friendship. All there is is enmity. There's hatred. That's what this woman is bringing up. How is it that you want to, you know, you want to ask me for something to drink when we're not even supposed to be talking? We're not even, we don't get along. We have this history of turmoil, all of these religious difficulties. And then she brings up something else, too. She says, and it's prominent in the Greek text, a woman of Samaria. I'm a woman. What are you doing talking to me? Now, you know, in our feminist culture, nobody wants to acknowledge this, but it wasn't proper for uh, a Jewish rabbi to talk to a woman. For a Jewish man, it was improper. In public like this, at a well, and a strange place, to just start this kind of conversation with a woman. It was improper. 
He wasn't supposed to do it. And add to that, that we aren't even supposed to get along because of our religious differences. And what does Jesus do? Right? Does, does Jesus provide some kind of an apologetic to why he decided to talk to her? He bypasses the entire issue. <laughs> he does, he doesn't, I don't care. He bypasses the entire issue. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, idolaters, not an issue. Jesus treated her as he treats every other sinner. The, the problem is, you don't know who I am, and you don't know what I have to offer you. That's basically what he's going to say to her in the next verse. Your sordid past, my sordid past, the, the, my hostility towards God and the way he ought to be worshipped, your hostility towards him, all of those things, your hostility towards the God of the Bible. And you can have that hostility while being in church because you don't really believe God. You don't trust in him. You kind of live like a Samaritan where you have the trappings of Christianity, but you don't really worship him. You don't genuinely fear God. All of that. You know what Jesus, in, well, Jesus says in the in the grand scheme of things, what matters is that you come to know who I am. Those things will keep you from God. You, you will go to hell if you do not know who Christ is as he is offered in the Gospels. If you don't believe in his name, you will go to hell. But no matter, no, uh, uh, it does not matter what kind of sin you are currently involved in or what kind of sin you used to be involved in or what kind of sin you're going to be involved in when you leave here uh, after service. What matters is what you do with Christ. And of course, if you come with Christ, you won't go back to your vomit. And this is the point that Jesus presses. You can find forgiveness for all of those sins, every one of them, in Christ. Because of who he is and because of what he offers. So in verse 10, really, you have the gift and the giver. Jesus answers and says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. These two things here, right? The gift of God and the giver. That's what he wants her to know. Christ, of course, has already been presented in this gospel as the gift of God. In John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ himself is the gift. 
In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. In Isaiah 42, 6, I will keep you, yes, and give you as a covenant to the people, as light to the Gentiles. God gives Christ. He is a gift. Isaiah 49, 6, I will also give you as light to the Gentiles. See, Christ is ultimately the gift of God to the world. He is given to us because he must be given for us. We are not acceptable to God. We can't just saunter into God's presence. Yet God, in his infinite kindness, chooses to condescend and to give a gift to rebellious, to evil, to wicked men and women who live after their own way. And the gift is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says it's an indescribable gift. Indescribable gift. My laptop is too hot because of the sun, so I need to use my phone. Give me a second. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And there in the context, it's the person of Christ. What did this woman have to offer Jesus? Well, we might say water. But really nothing. All she had to offer him was her checkered past. The same thing that we have to offer Christ. What we have to give, what we have to give to God, is sin to be forgiven. You see, the reason why God gave Christ to us is because He had to be given for us. He is given to us because He must be given for us. And you know, we appreciate those who give good gifts. We have, you know, friends or family members who give good gifts. They, they know, they know that, you know, they know all of our quirks, right? And so they gift us in light of those quirks. Or maybe in light of our needs. And God knows exactly what we need. We need Christ. We need his person. We need his work. We need his continual intercession for us. We need all of these things from Christ. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? God knows how to give good gifts. You see, the gift, of course, is Christ ultimately. 
Yet by receiving Christ, one receives the Spirit. And we'll see this intimate connection in the next dialogue, and I'll pick up this language of water there and explain all of it. I'll focus here mostly on Christ, on Him. Yet the Spirit comes from, or we receive the Spirit from Christ. Remember John's words in, in um, John the Baptist's words in John chapter 3, that the Father gives him the Spirit beyond measure. The Father gives all things to the Son, and the Son gives eternal life to those who believe in him. There's a, there's a connection there. Christ has the Spirit immeasurably, in a measure that, that cannot be comprehended, due to the perfection of His person, of course, due to the divinity of His nature, due to those things. He has the Spirit beyond measure, as we discussed. And that Spirit is the Spirit of new birth. It's the Spirit that washes and regenerates and gives life. And Jesus gives that spirit to those who believe in his name. He speaks the words of God. He gives the spirit of God. Now, in John, listen to how the woman responds. She says, The woman says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. From where then will you get living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? And Jesus' point, of course, Jesus is using this well and water, his thirst, her water bucket, all of these things, he's using it really to draw her into this conversation. And she's not quite getting it, and she might be a little sarcastic. You don't have to go somewhere to get this water. All you have to do is receive Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel. That's what he's saying to her. You, um, you, you have to remember the context, right? The context is that you have the locality, the, the place. We worship in Samaria. You worship in Jerusalem. We have our own customs and ways. We don't interact with each other. You're Jewish and I'm uh, a Samaritan. It, in essence, what Jesus is saying to her is, for to satisfy your greatest thirst, you don't have to go to a place. You have to come to a person. Come to me. Now, this is not a slight on the means of grace, listening to preaching, gathering with God's people. Notice the context, of course. It's locality and ethnicity is what Jesus is helping her understand. Those things don't matter. I am the Savior of the world. If you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, ask. Receive Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel. 
If you've been coming to this church for years and you're not a Christian, receive Christ as he is offered in the gospel, Lord and Savior, and follow him. Uh, what's so, um, that, I, lo I love the beautiful exhortation in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord and the Lord will have mercy upon him and he will pardon you abundantly. The difficulty that men have though is that they don't see that that is the position that they're in. They think they're, people think they're okay. And people come to church and listen to, to, to biblical preaching. And they, 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 don't, they don't give a hill of beans about it. They're, they're off in la-la land. They're on their phone. They're, they're thinking about, you know, what they're going to have for lunch. I got to do my nails. Uh, boy, I sure need to shave. Whatever. They don't, they don't care. They're not engaged at all with the things of God. There's no concern. They don't see that they're in the position of this woman. They think they're rich. They think that they have become wealthy and that they have no need. They do not know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And in the book of Revelation, when Jesus says those words, you know what he says to those people after he finishes saying that? He says to them this, he says, I counsel you to buy from me. Come to me, is what he's saying. Jesus, understanding even the hard-heartedness of men and women, he, gives, he offers the remedy. Look, those of you who don't think you have a problem, you're the ones who need to come to Christ also. One author put it this way. I thought it was very helpful. He says, there are two things that lead a person to desire and ask for grace. A knowledge of the gift and a knowledge of the giver. And that has to be in the context of understanding their need. And this is something that Jesus does when he engages with the woman. We'll see it next week. Why does he bring up her adultery? He wants to convict her of her thirst, of the real thirst that she has of the real need that she has. So the woman says to him, and there, there are four, four things at least that she brings up in her rebuttal. The first is where are you going to get this water from? And then she says, she points out the one who gave her the water. Our father Jacob gave us this water. And if you remember... In the passage, in the passages that we looked at with regards to the history of Samaria, remember this, Jacob bought this land and gave it to Joseph. So the Samaritan worship is, is really tied to Jacob in particular as a historic figure. The, the Samaritans, even today, they only use the five books of Moses. And uh, they have what is called the Samaritan Pentateuch that has some, some differences in many places, but it's but the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we have in existence is the Samaritan Pentateuch. 
and they very rarely let people even examine it for textual differences between the Masoretic text that we use. But, you know, that's, that's a whole, that's, you know, just nerd stuff. But, um, so the woman, it says to him, so, so first, where are you going to get this water from? Next, are you greater than Jacob? Jacob gave us this. You, Jacob labored to provide this water for us. And not only did he labor to provide this water for us, but it was so much water that, and, and so, well, first, it was good water. He drunk it, right? It wasn't just for the animals. He drunk the water. Not only did he drink it, but he gave his family to drink of this water. You, you see, from, from Jacob's labor, we have received this fresh water. Again, that aquifer still exists today. It's still there. You could still go to that well and draw water to drink. So what she's saying is, wait a minute. You know, Jacob, the son of Abraham, labored, right? He, he with a sword, he took this land. And he provides for, he provided for himself, Good water for his family. And it was, it's in such abundance that he even gave this fresh water to his cattle. Right? Where are you going to get it from? Are you greater than our father? Third, it's really good water. Fourth, it's a lot of water. Jacob provided this water for us. How are you going to provide living water for us? Yeah. You see the typical nature of the Old Testament in passages like this. So I'll state it this way. Jacob's labor to acquire this land, right, and digging this well is a picture. Right? It's a picture. It instructs us of Christ's labor and of the abundance of, of the spirit that well today still functions to show us how how unceasingly Christ has the spirit people still drink from that water today that's just a picture of how Christ has the spirit beyond measure because Jesus again he doesn't even go into a discussion with her about him being greater than Jacob what he does is he just continues to talk about himself because that's what men must know. Men must know Christ. If you want people to become Christians, display Christ. Communicate who Christ is, his person, his work, why he came, what he accomplished. Because that's what he's doing here. Jesus answered, 13, and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. So now he, in essence, by, by using this contrast, this but, you have this water, it's good water, but there's this other water that I'm offering. It's a different kind of water. This water causes people never to thirst again. The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. 
This is, of course, this water reference is a reference to the, to the spirit. And what Jesus is saying is she's saying, she said to Jesus, okay, where are you going to get this water from? He says, I carry the water in myself. I have the spirit beyond measure. And if you believe in me, I will give you that same spirit that you may never thirst spiritually. That's what Christ is saying to her. The woman said unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither have to come here to draw. She still misunderstands Jesus. But that's okay. Jesus is speaking to her about the gift of the Spirit. That's where spiritual life comes from. What Jacob gave was good, living water. What Jesus gives is better, the Spirit. And he says, you will never be thirsty again. The possibility of thirst is emphatically denied because he has the Spirit without measure in such a great capacity, in an infinite capacity. Therefore, when he gives the Spirit, he gives the Spirit to his people without measure. The Spirit is theirs always. It could never be taken away. And he says that this Spirit, when he gives it, it becomes, so he says four things. His water is better than Jacob's water. Second, his water leads to never thirsting. Third, it becomes a well. Really here, the idea is of an artesian well. It just doesn't run out. Fourth, this water springs up into everlasting life. And the word that he uses here, the springing up, it refers to a very vibrant movement. And it's never used in reference to water, but in the Old Testament, it's used to describe how the Spirit falls on Samson and empowers him to do mighty deeds for God. This, this liveliness and the power that the Spirit gives. Jesus' metaphor is important. It's, it's important for the woman, of course, and for us to understand. It just uh, Think about this, right? So when you're talking about uh, bodies of water in, in, this, in that region, in that place of the world, you had living water and non-living water. Non-living water was not connected or united with the source from which it came. Right? So it was either co collected some way. They collected rainwater, they brought in water, they piped in water, but there wasn't a, a, a connection to this dead water and the source of the water. Therefore, what, what can happen? It could dry out. It gets really hot, you don't get any rain. You, you, um, the, the distance is too far, your, your, your systems of irrigation break down, whatever. You can lose this source of water. Yet, yet, living water is connected to its source, 
living water, it flows from the source itself. That's where the, it, it produces its water from. And it's, it's moving, right? It's, it's constantly flowing water because there's a direct connection to the source of water itself. And what Jesus is saying to the woman is that the, the hostility that you perceive or that actually exists between the Samaritans and the Jews, the work that Jacob accomplished, all of these things function to show the woman her need, uh, well, who Christ is, that the hostility that exists can be taken away. She can have eternal life. That the work that Jacob accomplished is only a small picture image of what Christ accomplishes for his people. In no other place, in John 7, when Jesus is speaking about the Spirit, he, he, he says to the people in John 7, 37, he gets up and he says, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus, of course, is talking about the Spirit there. That's what he's saying. He's, and he's communicating to the woman, listen, there can be a live and living source of godliness and eternal life in your own heart if you but come to me. If you come to me. And of course, Isaiah communicates this wonderfully in Isaiah 58, 11. He says, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. He shall be, you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose water does not fail. I ask you this morning, are you thirsty? The, the, the Samaritan woman, she was despised. She had true spiritual thirst. You can see how, you can see that this woman had an intensive thirst, and she was looking for, for something. We don't, we don't know what it was that she was looking for, but we know that she was looking for something. Why? Because she had five husbands. And she, whatever it is that she was lacking, she was looking for it in the wrong place. She was looking for it in those five husbands and in the man that she was currently living with who was not her husband. She was trying to satisfy herself in some way. She had a need, a genuine desire. Yet she didn't know where to go to have that need satisfied. So Christ comes. Christ comes to her. And he says, if you knew me and you would just ask me, I would give you what you need. Every desire satisfied by pouring out my spirit upon you and giving you joy everlasting. You know, um, One author put it this way. 
He said, people desperately search for the things only God can give them, while at the same time, they are fleeing from him. And look, some of you may be here because you're looking for those things that God gives. Joy, peace, patience, happiness, self-control, the, all of these wonderful things. Yet, you don't come to him. You don't come to Christ. You don't believe in his name. You don't think that, you're, that you have a problem. You do not believe that you are a sinful person and need a savior. And you stay at a distance. You allow your hostility to keep you from Christ. You allow things of this world that may bring some temporary enjoyment to keep you from Christ. But what Christ is communicating to this woman, he communicates it to you today. If you would but ask him. If you would see Christ and receive Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel, your thirst would be satisfied. We'll finish Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to gather on this day and to consider your ways with man, Lord, your great compassion and care for sinners. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see our need for the Savior and to ask, to ask him to be gracious to us and to pour out his spirit upon us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.